Hey everybody, this is Rafe Telsch and this is episode 78 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's having a great week out there. We didn't have a Monday episode this week because of the holiday. Totally forgot about that. Uh, so didn't end up putting together a Monday episode. But hope you had a great weekend, a great extended weekend. Uh, and we'll be back with a, a Monday discussion this coming week. Uh, in the meantime, we have our movie discussion for the week. And this week, the guest is the return of James Rodriguez. He's been on a couple of times before. And he keeps picking really interesting movies that, frankly, I've never even heard of until he recommends them to me. And this week's pick is... Is no different. He went with 1999's Ravenous, another movie I hadn't heard of, uh, with an all-star cast. It, it, it's an interesting movie, and it's kind of hard to describe, uh, although James does a great job in the episode, so I'll just leave it to that point uh, for what the movie's about. I will warn you, uh, there's a lot of cannibalism and a little bit of vampirism discussion over the course of the movie conversation because this is that kind of a movie. So if that's the kind of thing that triggers you, you might want to steer clear of this episode, but I don't recommend it because it's a great conversation. We, as usual, go off on a couple of tangents that are definitely worth listening to and have a great time discussing this oddball picture that uh, James brings. Now, I do want to add one extra note in before we get going, um, and that is we end up having a conversation about the music in the movie, and I do recommend that it, when you listen to the trailer part of this, when I play the, the trailer audio, uh, do pay attention to the music there, because shortly thereafter we will talk about the music, and that gives you a little sampling of what the music in the film was like. But that said, let's go ahead and get into the conversation about 1999's Ravenous with guest James Rodriguez. This is your third time on the show. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you brought a coming-of-age story, uh, then you brought a collection uh, and a nice anthology of stories, and, and now this one. So what I want to know is, James sits down on a Friday night after a busy week at work. How does James... Pick, figure out what to watch. How do you, how do you just sit down and pick what to watch? Because you've got quite an eclectic range of tastes. First of all, thank you. <laughs> Second, um, honestly, it it's a combined factors of things. Like it could be one day it's like, oh, I need to watch this because there's a sequel to it coming out. It could just be, I've got to review this, so I need to watch this. Mm -hmm. It could just be, oh, that's popped up on Netflix. I'll give that a go. Or it could just be, I hate myself. Let's watch another Hellraiser sequel. <laughs> I, I love that you got that specific about I hate myself. <laughs> that, that is a, it, a specific breed of torment to watch another uh, Hellraiser sequel. <laughs> I've been going through them as of late. And yeah, it's yeah pain and for a series about pain and pleasure they really go through a lot of pain in the sequels <laughs> I mean, christ <laughs> i i gave up i i've watched uh, a couple of the sequels and then went yeah this is not the hellraiser i fell in love with and i hell i even saw i think he tweeted it but clive barker even has disavowed like i'm not part like the the poster says from the mind of clive barker and he tweeted like no it's not <laughs> I really don't blame them because famously after a point, the, they were just like, okay, this is a good script right now. Add Hellra, add Pinhead and all the Cenobites and we got a movie and it really shows. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you been watching lately? 
Um, I've actually been delving into a bit of TV lately. So I started Ted Lasso. And I, I have not gotten into that yet. I've heard great things about it. It's such a warm hearted show. It's really, I don't give two flying fucks about football, but I am really in love with the show. It's hey, so hey, hey, this is an American podcast. You will call it soccer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on my shores, so I call it football. So <laughs> thank you very much. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, Ted Lasso, what else? um i've also started uh the sopranos which, oh yeah one of those i've heard so much about it and i've never got to it so i thought well might as well and it's very good like, there's a reason the show was so acclaimed since its 99 debut i suppose yeah i i when the trailer came out recently for the prequel movie that they're doing uh with james gandolfini's son playing that same character i've mm. i've wanted to revisit the sopranos because it's been years since i've watched it but i just don't have time for yet another tv show right now that's fair enough i mean some days i don't have time for well just an episode of one show and <laughs> <laughs> so piling on a six season series is quite an undertaking, but I'm I'm on season three now, so let's see how it goes if I can finish in time for the film. Right. But at least they're short seasons. I mean that's the that's the nice thing that's about true. HBO is that they really kind of set the model for those abbreviated seasons. You know, a show doesn't have to have twenty two episodes to a season. We will still do an excellent job with storytelling but we'll do it in eight episodes or we'll do it in 10 episodes. And I, over the last few years, I've really gained an appreciation for that approach to storytelling. Yeah. Sometimes less is more. Sometimes having less episodes allows you to cut the flap, get to know these characters, get to the story without having 14 episodes of filler, which just makes you roll your eyes as ugh, some characters reach the same point they were at the beginning of the episode well and, and correct me if i'm wrong but that's pretty much always been the the english model of television like you guys don't have 22 episodes in a television series right you you guys usually had shorter shorter because you call them series instead of season but you you usually mm -hmm. only had you know uh half that amount or, or so right um what people tend to forget is one of our more recognizable exports 40 towers was only 14 episodes long and that's really seeped into the popular culture to the point that there was a scene in logan which i swear was taken from an episode of 40 towers now i've seen faulty towers and mm. i can't say that anything in logan stood out to me as like oh they took this from basil <laughs> It's the point where um, uh, Wolverine, before the third act, Wolverine's trying to start the car and it's not starting. So he gets like a bit of tree or something and starts whacking the car, oh. which is like Basil Fawlty hitting his car with a bit of branch. Or... Yeah. Okay. You're right. You're right. I didn't think about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, comic books and Britishness. What, what can I tell you about me? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's that is james in a nutshell right there comic books and britishness <laughs> uh well let's go ahead and get into the movie because you you I, i've got some stuff to say about this one and i'm sure you do too 
Uh, mm-hmm. you picked, this is, this is your third appearance and this is the third one that you picked that I hadn't heard of prior to you sending the message. It was just like, yes. you sent the message going, this is my pick and I'm on the receiving end going, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and I really need to get in the habit of asking you to sell me on the movie. Uh, Cause I asked that as a question on the podcast. Anyway, I need to start getting guests to do that. Like explain to me why, what this movie is. Cause I don't look at descriptions and if I'm not familiar with the movie already, I usually don't look at a trailer. I just go in cold, and that's what I did with this movie. <laughs> which was... Sometimes the best way, though. Yeah. I mean, you got perfect um, to go in, perfect way to go into these films because yeah. anything can happen, and you end up really surprised. For better or worse is another question. I did end up completely surprised. So we're talking today about Ravenous from 1999, written by Ted Griffin, directed by Antonia Bird, starring Guy Pierce, Robert Carlyle, David Arquette, Jeremy Davies, Jeffrey Jones, and John Spencer. We're sending you to California, Fort Spencer. We have four missing soldiers, Captain, and their bodies. We need a supportable explanation. Captain John Boyd is about to discover... No one just ends up at Fort Spencer. We come for a reason. Yours being? Well, something he never imagined. We have a great sense of camaraderie here at Fort Spencer. (laughs) This Indian scout told me a curious story. Winged eagle. It's an old Indian myth from the north. Man eats the flesh of another. (laughs) He absorbs the other man's strength. Now, one man must choose. We need others. Between having dinner and being dinner. So annoying. I'm Major Knox. Guy Pierce. Ives! I'm gonna kill him. Robert Carlyle. He was tough, but then a uh, good soldier ought to be. Jeffrey Jones. Me, uh, I bring you into the fold. What's wrong? David Arquette. <laughs> There's no guilt. I gotta eat. Ah! It's tough making friends. Eat to live. Don't live to eat. Huh? That was really sneaky. He was licking me! Ravenous. Bon appetit. So let's start with the question I just asked you, which is how do you sell this movie to people? How do you describe it to people in a way that makes them want to see it if they haven't heard of it like me? I think the best way to describe it is it's a cannibal horror, which is crossed with a Western, and it's ready to make you laugh and ready to leave you quite unsettled. And if you've seen Bone Tomahawk, I think this is a good double bill with that. I have not yet seen Bone Tomahawk. That, that'll that come up a little later. Uh, I, I, mm. I've, I've had it on my list for forever to watch, and I just haven't pulled the trigger. Uh, when I read the description of this, my first thought was Cannibal the Musical. <laughs> have you seen that? 
I have not. Okay. Um, That's uh, Trey Parker it. and Matt Stone who created South Park. They mm. uh, it was their student. It started as a student film, if I remember correctly. Uh, it is kind of set in this same time period, and it's a musical. And it's actually the musical numbers are pretty darn good uh, about uh, resorting to cannibalism. So that that was my first thought. This is not that. This did. You're, you're right. It does have comedic elements in it that will make you laugh. Um, but it is. It's set during the Spanish American War, which they make a big deal out of, but doesn't really come into play other than just establishing the time era that the movie is set. And it has cannibal horror in it, which is weird. So how did you discover this movie? Like, what's your history with this one? Okay, so one of the one of the things which helped me find my voice in film criticism was British film critic Mark Kermode. Okay. And... I would go on, he used to have like videos just talking about films, talking about his process, talking about um, stuff he loves and reactions to films. And he's actually was voted Britain's best loved film critic, but the general public don't really give two tosses about film critics. So that's damning with faint praise, really. But I remember when Julia DeCorno's film Raw was coming out, Kermo did a video listing his five favorite cannibal films and this was on that list and it just got my attention for how it's a film with Robert Carlyle and Guy Pearce about cannibalism I was just like oh that's a really interesting mix so I did what many film fans today do I put it on my letterbox watch list and I forgot all about it <laughs> I cannot tell you how many movies I have on that list that I mm-hmm. don't remember. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't until years later I stumbled across it on the listings for the horror channel. So I put it on to record. And then I I recorded it, but then I didn't watch it for months. So further pushing it along before I watched it one Saturday and I was just blown away by what I saw. And so when the time came up to pick another film for this, I realized this was on Disney Plus in the UK. And I thought, oh, I cannot wait to talk about this. This is on Disney Plus in the UK? Yeah. Um, it's how in America you guys have Hulu. We right. have a offset on the Disney Plus app called Star, which right. has the more adult stuff like The Walking Dead and uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's made it very interesting because you can go on the Disney Plus app and you can have a good day to die hard right next to a goofy movie. (laughs) See, I just bitched about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago when Mm -hmm. I did The Way Way Back, which was Fox Searchlight, and that I had to pay for it. And I had to pay for this. It's it's mm-hmm. not streaming anywhere in any of the subscription services, and I, I I I have subscriptions to almost every streaming service, and I had to 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 rent this be- even though it's a 20th Century Fox. So the fact that they've got it right, it, it, this is the exact same rant I gave a couple weeks ago, which is the fact that they've got it right there that that you guys can access it, but we can't hear is like that's just bad business, Disney. Come on, get with it. Uh, so how long ago did you did you watch this? Because Disney Plus hasn't been out for very long, so you you, you this is a, a recent find for you? No, I well depends how recent. I think I watched it first time in 2017. Okay, and it instantly became like a favorite of mine, and just rewatching it this time solidified it for me greatly. Okay, yeah, it's it's an interesting movie, and I mean, you mentioned you know Guy Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle, and it it has. 
a hell of a cast. Like when the <laughs> opening credits were were rolling, and I'm looking at you know Guy Pierce, Robert Carlyle, David Arquette, as I already said, Jeremy Davies, Jeffrey Jones, John Spencer. Uh, who else? There was somebody else that, that didn't make it into my opening line. Oh, uh, uh, Neil uh, uh, McDonough. McDonough, yeah. Who? What's funny is I watched this yesterday after watching What If, the first episode of What If, and uh, Neil McDonough does a voice in that. So yesterday was just a Neil McDonough day, which is fine by me. I love. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a phenomenal actor. I I enjoy him. But yeah, it was like I'm watching these names on the screen, and I'm just like, how have I not heard about this? It does have a really good cast, although. It wasn't until re-watching it I realized, oh shit, Jeffrey Jones is in it. So yes. I am sorry for <laughs> subjecting you to that piece of shit. But what can you do, I guess? Well, honestly, with the way his character is treated in this movie, there was a bit of catharsis to that. Um, <laughs> That's very true. And un- Until the twist, there was a lot of satisfaction about that. And then after the twist uh, with his character, I was like, oh, great. Uh, and then, but, but yeah, all in all, I, I kind of, I felt like, yeah, that, that, that's satisfactory for, for Jeffrey Jones. Yeah. This is, uh, 99. So this is before anybody knew what a piece of shit he was, but. So like the usual suspects, Kevin Spacey whole thing. Right. Yeah. And I'm, and, and I'm one of those where you, you, it's a debate that I've had numerous times on numerous podcasts with numerous people that it's like, it's hard to figure out where to draw that line. Because, mm. like, do I never want to watch The Usual Suspects again because Kevin Spacey's in it? No, I love that movie. It's a it's a phenomenal... Well, and hell, it's directed by Brian Singer, who's also a piece of shit. So it's like, do, does that just write that movie off? And it's like, no, it's mm. a really well-told story. It's really enjoyable. So you just have to look past the fact that it has these pieces of shit involved with it. So, no, I wasn't, like, sitting here cursing your name. Well, maybe a little. Maybe a little cursing your name for Jeffrey Jones. But, uh, yeah. Um... Let's go ahead and get into the critic side of things, because this is not a highly ranked movie. I was a little surprised at that, because most of the movies you've brought on, people are gushing about, and it's just I haven't heard about them. This one sits at 49% at Rotten Tomatoes, although it does have a 78% audience score. So audiences liked it a lot more than critics, but it does sit at 46% at Metacritic. And and as usual, the the critical reviews I'm pulling in have some things that I kind of want to chat about. The positive review, you're going to love this, comes from Roger Ebert. He, he gave it a positive review, uh, and he uh, writes, The director is a British woman named Antonia Bird. I didn't admire her priest, but she shows she's a real filmmaker. She is wisely more interested in atmosphere than plot and has an instinct for scenes like the one where a visiting general savors the broth of a bubbling stew. Her shots of meat are all cheerfully off-putting. She revealed at the film's Sundance Festival premiere that she is a vegetarian, which came as no surprise. She does what is very hard to do. She makes the weather feel genuinely cold, damp, and miserable. So much snow in the movies looks too pretty or too fake, but her locations in Slovakia are chilly and ominous. The film's setup is more fun than its payoff, because in a story of this nature, we would rather dread what's going to happen than see it. The movie makes much of the strength to be gained by eating human flesh, and there is a final confrontation between two men, both much fortified by their fellows, that feels like one of those superhero battles in a comic book where neither side can lose. I don't know that I agree with the superhero comment. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't get that. It felt like a proper down and dirty, they were literally fighting for not their survival but literally throwing whatever they could get their hands on to stop the other side and enact well really what they wanted and yeah the superhero thing is a 
I suppose it's especially different because in 1999, the superhero genre was quite a dead zone. I mean, I don't know if Blade had come out at this point, but we had Batman and Robin pretty much <laughs> stop things for ages. Uh, Blade was eight, it was 98, so yes, it had come oh. out. Oh, okay. So, mm, yeah. Good. Okay, on the negative side, Lisa Schwartzbaum for Entertainment Weekly wrote, Ravenous is the work of Antonia Bird, whose own lust for pushing emotional and dramatic limits, evident in Priest and even in the interesting failed teen angst drama Mad Love, is the British director's most vivid characteristic. Her indie sensibility suits the acting styles of Jeremy Davies, Jeffrey Jones, Stephen Spinella, and David Arquette, all of whom play soldiers of motley stripe. But metaphor madness and a muddled script by novice Ted Griffin get the best of Bird here as she hacks and slashes her way from carcass to carcass. Also distracting, a self-conscious score by the piano's Michael Nyman and Blur's Damon album that announces artsy gore on the way before every scene of eviscerated human remains. And as a cowardly brooder who becomes the hungry stranger's moral reverse image, the usually charismatic Guy Pierce more or less lies down in the snow, passive, letting the mayhem roll over him like he's a lone spare rib, and all the blood in Bloody Ravenous is just so much barbecue sauce. I mean... I really liked the score. It was very, uh, I mean, I usually try and be a bit, it's their own opinions about critical side of things, but uh, no, I can't agree with that. I mean, see, Ebert liked the score as well. And mm. I'm going to side with Schwartzbaum on it. I thought the score wow. was oppressive. I didn't like it, except there was one point in the movie where I even made a note in my notes about how well the score worked there. But the, the rest of the time, I really found the score to be disruptive. And the friend that I was watching this with actually asked if I could turn the volume down because there were certain notes that were that were being repeated endlessly that were starting to kind of strain their nerves. But as oh, I said, Ebert, Ebert liked it. So, I mean, hmm. like I didn't pull that part of his review, but he did make a point in his review of commending the score. So I find it interesting that you're on the Ebert side of things and I'm on the Schwartzbaum side of things. I mean, I think it's very, it's an interesting score because it certainly doesn't go the way you'd expect. Well, as much as you can expect with a cannibal Western horror comedy. <laughs> yeah, it definitely doesn't fill any of those genres with the soundtrack. Mm. And I like how at times it feels like a bit old school Western other time, like when they're exploring the cave. I, I think it really added to the atmosphere and made things a bit more chilling. And I th I'll admit, there's a bit of chase music when Robert Carlyle's chasing after, um, I believe it's Jeremy Davis, which mm -hmm. feels a bit much. But I dug the score, which is, funnily enough, one of the people doing it is Damon Alburn, who was in the band's, band's Blur and the Gorillas. Right. Yeah, I mean that's I I, I as I, that that moment that you're talking about where he's chasing Jeremy Davies, that's the mm. moment that I wrote down on my sheet. Soundtrack is oppressive. Like I just thought it was too much. Like it hadn't the the opening had been too much for me, and then the the exploring the cave had been too much for me, and then that chase was just like this is heavy handed with the score. It's not subtle, and it, I didn't feel like it fit the scene. Um, so, and, and again, the friend I was watching it with didn't like the score either. So when I sat down to put this together and I'm reading through reviews and Ebert praises the scorer and he's not the only one, the other, the, I looked at several other reviews where they were like, I liked the score. I liked the score. I liked the score. And I'm like, I'm just in the minority apparently. Cause I didn't. So it doesn't surprise me that you have a differing opinion on that. Um, mm. and as you said, it, it really does come down to, it is about opinion. 
you know, and you're entitled to yours. And I, that doesn't make yours wrong because I didn't like it. It doesn't make mine wrong because you did like it. It just is, it's personal taste. That's it. That's, there's better things you can be arguing about whether then if one film's good or not, really. Yeah. I did also find a comment about uh, um, Bird's, uh, how did she put it? Indie sensibility suits some of the actors, but doesn't suit some of the others. Because I disagree with that. I thought this cast, and as I said, I was watching the names, and like little character actor, like Jeremy Davies. I, I fell in love with Jeremy Davies when he was on Lost, and I have Same. enjoyed everything I have seen him in since then. And like when his name pops hmm. up in credits or I see his face, uh, because he didn't have a part big enough to rank <laughs> in the opening credits, <laughs> I'm just like, yay, it's Jeremy Davies. Like I love his style of performance, but I, I don't think, I mean, I do think those actors give a good performance in here. David Arquette, I'm kind of iffy on, um, because as you said, cannibal horror, Western comedy. So let's get a stoner in there as well. <laughs> um, but I it think, does feel like a 90s edition, really. It does, it does. But I think all of those performances are elevated up, but I don't think it happens at the detriment of Guy Pierce. In mm. fact, I think Guy Pierce's characterization, some of the things, the observations I made as I was watching the movie, I think his characterization is, is pretty concrete throughout the entire movie. And Robert Carlyle, uh, I, I mean, you already made the comment about Carlyle chasing Davies. So mm. Carlyle shows up in the movie, for those who have not seen the film, he shows up as a survivor from this encampment that had had to resort to cannibalism. And uh, he tells this sob story and he reveals that he ran away. And I loved that moment because I was so focused on the fact that he's a coward. He didn't try to save the woman. He ran away. And we already have a coward because that's Boyd, the character that Guy Pierce plays. That's his defining trait. That's that's he gets promoted at the beginning of the movie because of an act of cowardice. So the fact that here comes Robert Carlyle playing another character who's also a coward, I was like, oh, this is a connecting tissue between them. So when the twist happens and it turns out that Carlyle is the cannibal, my first thought was, how the hell did I not see this coming? It's Robert fucking Carlyle. Like that right there should have been the indicator that he's going to be the bad guy. But the movie drew me in, especially with that performance he gives telling the story about the encampment. I didn't even for a second think to doubt him. And then suddenly it was like, oh shit, he's the bad guy. It does really make sense with, because Robert Carlyle is one of those actors that you see and you just want to shout to the characters, run, right. it's Robert Carlyle. <laughs> and the guy, when he gets a villainous role, he really sinks his teeth into it. He really relishes it. He is frightening, but you're right. He just draws you in with that story with how he acts he has hurt eyes. He looks like a broken man. He really sells it. Mm -hmm. And he, he always has like the right thing to say to get him out of suspicion, to get right. him out of trouble. And he's such a fascinating character. And yeah, when the twist comes, it's obvious in hindsight, but it's very well played in the film itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when they, when they go into the cave and there's the pit, and that was my note was pit. Calhoun didn't mention a pit. Like, what? what is... Oh, it's a trap. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is... this is, And, and I, as I said, I wrote down why I should have, should have predicted that because of Carlisle. I just didn't see it at all. Carlisle's amazing in this movie, whether it is, as you said, the broken man at the beginning, when he, he gets to just go over the top, batshit crazy as the cannibal that's chasing them in the middle point. And then when he shows up as 
Colonel Ives. And like, I've watched the movie. Like Guy Pierce is saying it's the same guy. And I've watched the movie and I'm even going, but is it? You know, I mean, he, he's trimmed. He's, he's, he looks a little thinner. He's trimmed his beard down to just the goatee. You know, he, he, mm. he looks respectable. And then when he takes his shirt off and there's no wound there, there was a part of me going, is it really the same guy? Or is this like they double cast Carlisle to fuck with the audience? You know? Oh, that's an interesting thought. See, I never thought that when I've when I watched it. My maybe it says more about me that I was initially distrustful. I was like, no, he's playing with him. He's mucking with <laughs> Guy Pierce. But no, that's an interesting point. But I couldn't ju- I couldn't explain why there was no bullet wound. Now, as the movie goes on, hmm. they what I love about one of the things I love about this movie is it explains it, but it doesn't hit you over the head with it. It explains it by Guy Pierce's character getting wounded, and when they finally force him to commit these acts of cannibalism, his wounds heal. Mm. And but they never go back and say, "Oh, that's why that bullet wound didn't show up." It's just to the audience to go, "Oh, that makes sense now." But at mm. the time, I was like, "He should have had a bullet wound. Why isn't there a wound if it's the same guy?" <laughs> <laughs> no, that is true. There's that maybe that's to do with how Antonia Bird handles it, and which is. Are you aware of the production history behind this film? Because it is a shit show. Yeah, I am. Go ahead and share, though, because I'm sure my listeners probably are not if they're not familiar with this movie. I'll gladly do so. (laughs) So originally, Antonia Bird wasn't the director. It was to be directed by uh, Milcho Manchevsky. Now, he's a director I'm I'm not familiar with as director, but him and Fox 2000 weren't getting along well. The production was being micromanaged. Shooting was delayed from the first day because the budget and the shooting stage schedule were still being negotiated. And pretty much the screenwriter was on hand for constant rewrites during the, sh- during the shooting. Basically, after three weeks, Fox, execu- Fox 2000 executive Laura Ziskin arrived to the set with director Raja Gosnell. And basically, the idea was they're going to dismiss Manchevsky and replace him with Gosnell as director. At that point, the cast rejected Gosnell. They rejected that they were being forced on this guy over this director they they trusted and but to continue production Carlisle recommended a frequent collaborator of his Antonia Bird to take over and so after 10 days days of negotiation she did she was also very critical of the circumstances under which filming took place right. she said her her predecessor should not be blamed for the problematic production right but because she honest, encountered she encountered the same level of micromanagement and mm. and notes and and pushback from the studio so she said yeah it pretty much wasn't his fault the studios were just being a pain in the ass that's right and you know what i don't think any of it feels evident when you want to watch the film it's not like a fantastic four from 2015 <laughs> it's it does not feel well god yep yeah it's not fantastic for <laughs> mm. but the thing about all this which blows my mind the most was that this film this cannibal horror comedy was nearly directed by the guy who gave us big mama's house beverly hills chihuahua and the live action smurfs films yeah now my understanding is they didn't push back on uh, gosnell because they preferred uh, machevsky my understanding is they did they pushed back on gosnell because they just didn't feel like he was a good fit for this type of movie which as you as you just said he he wasn't this was not he was not the right person for this movie by any means at this point he'd only directed home alone free i mean what of that is a good indicator for this film yeah 
Welcome to the promo episode for Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast, the podcast in which I review the reviews of my podcast. This is a promo, but it's also a full-length episode to show you kind of what the show's about and like. So if this is in your regular feed that you're hearing this, this is actually also going out to a bunch of other podcasts who are swapping promos in 60-second spots with me, so I put their promo on my podcast later. So this is a, a promo slash episode um, to tell you what the show's about. If you already know, then thank you for listening and being a listener, but if you don't, uh, my show called Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast is about reviewing people's reviews of my show Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast. I go to iTunes, and every time I, I look at the reviews, I read and rate your reviews of my show um, about the podcast uh, I'm almost out of 60 seconds are up, so uh, check out my show in iTunes, rate and review it, Podcast Reviews Reviews Podcast, and we'll see you next week. So one of the things I, I really love, kind of going back to something I started a few minutes ago, one of the things that I really loved about uh, Boyd is, is we're mm. introduced to this character at the beginning of the movie, and... Uh, he's a coward. He he managed to overtake this Mexican uh, control point basically by when combat started, he got scared. So he laid down and played dead and then ended up being dragged in with all of the bodies and finally pushed his way free from all of the other corpses and took the command point. Um, and he's promoted for this, but the, his commanding officer even says, I know you're not a hero, so we're going to shove you off in this backwater fort that has absolutely no importance to it whatsoever. Mm. Later in the film, he gets to the point where they have the, 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 the cannibals have wounded him and they give him the choice that he can eat the stew, which has human flesh in it, and it will allow him following this myth of the Wendigo. Uh, he, he can feast on that and it will give him the strength of the person he's eating and it will heal him or he can choose to die and he chooses to eat, which to me is an act of cowardice. He doesn't have the bravery to stand to his convictions because he knows the cannibalism is wrong. He has, he has, he has argued against it. He has tried to get Ives slash, uh, uh, Calhoun captured, but when push comes to shove and he's given that that life or death moment, he doesn't want to stand with his convictions. He wants to live. And to me, that's an act of cowardice, mm. which is consistent with the character that we got at the beginning. So to me, one of the things I really like about this movie is the, the final conflict, the way the final conflict plays out. And they're trapped. And Calhoun says to him, if you die first, I'm going to eat you. And the question is, if I die first... Are you going to eat me? Are you going to eat to live? Or are you going to die? And he finally makes the decision to die, to let himself die. And to me, the the story is almost a story of this one man finding his bravery. Because everything else he's done in the movie has been acts of cowardice. Mm. I found that to be a really compelling underlying element to what could have been a very silly movie. And it at times is a silly movie. Let's be honest. Mm. No, that's uh, that is right because from open from his initial appearance, we know that Boyd is a coward. He's this coward who stumbled into heroism not of his own free will. He was pushed into it, and just because he led down and played dead, like well, like what my dog does, really. 
lies down and plays dead. Right. And later on, when, as you say, he doesn't stand up for his convictions, it's then when he's all healed up, he makes the... he. It seems like he's more set-minded against atoning for what he did. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, for all his cowardness, it's him trying to make up for it. And in that final moment, when he does go through the battle, when he does stop, like hold out long enough to stop Calhoun, when he does make the choice to not eat Calhoun, it you're right, it is him finally gaining, gaining that bravery. It's him finally earning that title, which was thrust upon him just as a good story to motivate the troops before he gets shuffled away. Unfortunately, it's all for naught because that general ends up tasting the stew. So it's clearly not over at the end. Well, and that's a question I was going to ask you. There was a part of me that almost wished they had left the end open-ended, which I guess they did with the general and Hmm. the stew. But we'll get to that in a second. Would you have preferred it if they the, the last shot had been that dialogue about... The question is, if I die first, will you have, will you live to eat? Will you, I mean, will you eat to live? Will you eat me or will you die? Fade to black. End of movie. You don't know which one lives, which one dies. You don't know what happens. There's a Mm. part of me that kind of wanted that ending to the film. I see what you mean. It's sometimes an ambiguous ending, sometimes one that makes you think rather than giving you the straight answers is, is more interesting. Right. But... In that same way, this feels like a good play, a good ending to his journey. It feels earned. And it doesn't feel like a cheat like it would in other hands. And I am, as much as I would like it to go the ambiguous route, I am very satisfied with show it showing and telling as it does yeah i think it's a good choice well as i said i mean to to me it that that is an important element for them to show because it does complete boyd's journey because otherwise if if it did end that way i mean there's a part of me that wants the ambiguous ending as you said just to, to keep me thinking about it but if it did end that way all we'd ever known was boyd was a coward mm. you know every act he did was an act of cowardice getting to see how it plays out is redemption for the character is the end of his journey, as you said. And they do leave it open-ended because as these two men are caught in this giant bear trap, <laughs> Oh my God. As these two men are caught in this giant bear trap, dying, the general shows up, which they were anticipating and uh, helps himself to some of the, the Knox stew. My question is, he doesn't know that he's eaten hum- human flesh. No. So, how powerful will this myth of the Wendigo play? Like, to me, it's like he's going to eat the stew and he's going to feel vigorous and be like, damn, that was really good stew. And then he's going to move on. And he might have this craving, but since he didn't know where the stew came from, he's never going to know that that's a craving for human flesh. Like, he does not consciously know that he has committed cannibalism. So doesn't it end at the end of this movie anyway? Or do you think the the, the myth of the Wendigo is it takes and takes and takes? Do you think he does start craving human flesh and therefore uh, the, the, the story continues? It is an open end. See, when you said that, I, fi- I think back to... Boyd at the beginning, before he knows about the Wendigo stuff, he played dead. He 
I believe he drank the blood rather than actually eat. He he does say that some of it went, that the blood of his commander went down his throat. Mm. Right. So he's had the taste. Yeah. He gets the vigorous. He's more vigorous. He takes the, he takes the stronghold for the, right. for his army. Oh and my then, God. Then when he's at the dinner and he's feeling sick when he's presented with, well, the most disgusting looking meat. Well done, Antonio bird. <laughs> oh my God. I, I never connected that. Mm. That's how he had the strength to uh, come out from the bo- pile of bodies. That's how he mm. had the vigor to take the base is because that was the hold of the Wendigo right there. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't make, I didn't make that connection watching it, but you're right. You're totally right. And we never see Boyd eat before he's tucks into that meal as his cowardice. Um, the not stew. So before, so pretty much he's looking worse for wear even before the whole shootout. With a great makeup job. Oh yeah. They make him look so sickly. Mm. Although I did put in my notes that uh, he was channeling his best Ethan Hawke. <laughs> That's fair enough. Because you have to admit, he looks a hell of a lot like Ethan Hawke in some of those scenes. <laughs> yeah, the makeup job is amazing. But you're right. And he does have that conversation early on with uh, Calhoun about once... Because Calhoun tells them that he has committed cannibalism, but he tells them basically mm. it was it was out of desperation. But he and Calhoun have that conversation about the, what he says, savage hunger that comes from having eaten on it. And you do get a look from Boyd that he, that he is aware of that, like that he, he, he associates with that. I didn't put that together though, that that is connected with him drinking the blood at the beginning of the movie. My Mm. God. Oh my (laughs) God. Brilliant. That's what, well, and I'll just fix the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like it. (laughs) And maybe it's just me, but I was sensing a bit of sexual tension between Calhoun and Boyd throughout underlying it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, and and uh, you know when they are dead there at the end, mm. in, embraced in the bear trap, which I still can't get over that that was a thing. They are laying like lovers. They're out of breath. They're covered in each other's fluids. I mean, it's a love. Well, I meant more the positioning of the bodies looked like a lover's embrace, but yeah, okay, covered in each other's fluids. We'll go with, uh, yeah, that's a little more graphic, but okay. <laughs> you want graphic? Boy, Calhoun keeps saying, are you going to eat me? Yeah, that's true. That's true. No, I do. I mean, that's, that's, I didn't quote that part of the review, but, um, uh, Ebert's review of Ravenous opens with the line, of course, a vampire is simply a cannibal with good table measures. <laughs> that, and there are, there are, uh, even though this is about the Wendigo and this is about cannibalism, there are elements in this movie that very much felt like vampirism or zombieism or that kind of thing that, that felt, I mean, there's the whole conversion mentality where they, they hurt Boyd so he has a choice of either eating the flesh of another creature and living, which is that's that's vampirism, right? Mm. Or dying. So it, it did have that, and and then of course you know fearing the conversion of others in a zombie kind of way. So it did, even though it's not about those things, there are t- t- uh, kind of themes and ideas from zombie movies and vampire movies that are present here in this film. 
Yeah, and in the end, when Robert Carlyle's in that getup and he's got the blood cross on his forehead, he looks like such a good vampire. I mean, oh, that first that that see that was the scene where I noticed the score and like liked it was mm. that that when he's hunting when when Boyd is hunting Ives and it has that spinning shot that has Carlisle oh, go yeah. by so quickly that your eye barely can discern it. And you certainly can't make out the cross on his forehead or anything like that. That mm. was such a cool sequence of events, that shot and the music that goes with it. But you have to admit, Carlisle letting his hair down as Ives and the facial hair and the, the thing, it, it had a very Manson va- vibe to it. <laughs> That's, yeah, I can see what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they they bring that up earlier uh, kind of the the cross on his forehead seems like a weird choice, but mm. when the natives are talking about the myth of when the Wendigo earlier on in the film, the 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 colonel is quick to dismiss it. Like I don't believe this, and and they say you know white men eat the flesh of another person every mm. Sunday. Like there's this comparison of the myth of the Wendigo and 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 cannibalism to the sacrament, and mm. I thought that's an interesting thing to throw out there. Now they don't do anything with it, but suddenly it makes sense when you get to the end of the movie and Calhoun has the the cross on his head. Um, that's almost a tie into that idea of is cannibalism that far removed from sacrament. And it is added on with Jeremy Davis's very religious character. Yes. His very first image is him putting up that cross. Out yes. The, which can I just talk about, the way they introduce the characters works so well yes. to get into who they are. Like, just you see Neil McDonough shouting in that ice cold river, and you just instantly know he's the hyper masculine soldier with a screw loose. Oh, hell, and when, when Calhoun shows up as just they don't know who he is yet, he's just the frozen man. Mm. That character comes in shirtless. It's the oh, middle yeah. of winter, and he's like got a shirt, his shirt is wide open so he can show off his chest. Like that, I I knew, I was like, not that there's anything homoerotic about it. It's just, he knows that that's the kind of soldier he is and he's going to show himself off. And like, I know guys like that, that there's nothing sexual about it. It's more just, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> just being a bit of a show off. Really. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I dug that. Yeah, you're right. And then like Jeremy Davies uh, uh, putting up the cross and, and us being told about that. We haven't talked a lot about, uh, Steven Spinella as Knox, the doctor, the drunken, oh, yeah. the drunken doctor. Um, yeah, I mean, the introduction to the the crew uh, of the, the fort is really, you're right, is really well done. Except for the fact that it's, you know, Jeffrey Jones telling us that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can't have it all, it seems. Right. No, and I guess let's, let's real quick... Um, mm-hmm. Jeremy Davies uh, does play the religious guy and he, he does a brilliant, I think he's fantastic in this. Uh, you know, I mean, I, as I said, I love him in other things. Uh, I love his, his private character in this Toffler who, uh, you know, is he's, he's trying to, to write a hymn, you know, as they're, as they're traveling to, from the fort to these caves, he's trying to compose a hymn and he's like, his, his religiousness is pissing everybody else off, but it's still inherent to who his character is. Um, David Arquette, uh, plays one of the other privates. He's a stoner. 
you know, is pretty pretty clear both in the introduction that we get and the way he acts. Uh, there's a mm. reason why he is the one that's sent to town for supplies because they don't want him around, and they're hoping that a couple days, three days journey is time he can't, you know, abuse any substance. <laughs> and I believe he's was sent off with Martha, who's pretty much just there to babysit him, make sure he actually gets the stuff they want and not just piss those three days away. Right. Right. Yeah. And I love, I love the fact that, I mean, Martha doesn't, does she, she doesn't say a word through the whole movie. If I remember correctly, mm. it's her, it's her brother who explains the whole myth of the Wendigo. No, she, no. Martha's the one who does the whole, the Wendigo takes and takes and doesn't. Yeah. So she does talk, but I, I, I enjoyed even George and Martha in the small roles that they had, you know, these, mm. these local, uh, uh, natives who have know a hell of a lot more about what's going on than these military men, you know? Yeah. And I do quite like that. Mark, they made Martha, um, yeah, she knows a lot more going on. She's not just like the typical, the maid, the right. token female in the male world. She's feels like a character who, with a purpose in that place rather yeah. than just just the eye candy or some shit. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, um, uh, Neil McDonough, as we said, uh, the, the, the masculine, the super masculine soldier um, who recognizes Boyd for what he is almost instantly. Mm. You know, Boyd is a captain and and Neil McDonough's character is a private. And yet when they realize that it's a trap and they need to hunt Calhoun down, he tells him, you get the hell out of my way. Like, it doesn't mm. matter that he's your superior officer. Get the hell out of my way. This is what I do. You know, it, and, and it's I, I think it's a great performance. I mean, I think I think all of the performances in this were great. Oh, yeah. It's a very well-cast film, and everyone fits their roles very well. I mean, Neil McDonough, I think, is a he's a good actor. He's just put in, often gets roles which are not very well-fitting of his talents. I can think of a couple he's done that are well-fitting, but yeah, you're probably right. Mm. Yeah. I think I think he could be bigger than he is. He just hasn't gotten those right roles yet. So, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he's been in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and yep. it's just in a bit part in cameo appearances, essentially, at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, I, the more I'm thinking about it, and the more I'm looking through my notes, the more I, I kind of agree with uh, Ebert talking about how the setup is more fun than its payoff, because we would rather dread what's happened next than see it. Mm. I still enjoy the payoff. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed the climax of the film. I enjoyed the resolution of the film, but there is something more delicious about the first half of the film. And, and as I said, that even when Calhoun shows back up as Colonel Ives, there is, there was a part of me that was really enjoying that. Cause it's like, what is going to happen next? Like what's his game here? Like, what if Knox hadn't been drunk? What if Knox had recognized him? then he would have been screwed. Like he's banking a lot on a drunken doctor, not recognizing him. I mean, everybody else would have recognized him as dead, but um, I, 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 I kind of agree with that, that this is, this is a film of atmosphere and the, the performances yeah. are great, but the setup uh, and, and the not knowing what's going to happen next, it, it does kind of fizzle a little bit at the end when, when there's a, an inevitability to what's going to happen. I mean, it's, mm. it's, uh, I, I, I made, uh, a note and now I'm trying to find it. I, I mean, I mean, there were several, there were several parts of the movie that it was like, I know what's going to happen next. You know, Boyd gets trapped in the hole mm. with, uh, with the, the, the private's body 
and he's stuck down there with a broken leg. He's going to eat him. That's predictable. And yes, they, <laughs> they show the passage of time and they show him resisting it, but it's, it inevitably happens. It's like, okay, we know what's going to happen now. Get, get past that. Like they could have spent less time focusing on that. Cause we all knew as the audience, what's going to happen, move on to what's happening. What happens next? What does this mean mm. for Boyd? You know? So I, I mean, I enjoyed this. I don't want you to think I didn't. Um, it, it probably out of the what? three that you've brought to the show so far, it's, it's probably my least favorite of the three, uh, just okay. in that, um, I've shown boy to family members. Like I've, I've rewatched oh. it to show them to other people and wild tales. I definitely will revisit at some point. I don't think I will revisit ravenous again. <laughs> like I've enjoyed watching it, but because so much of the excitement is in the anticipation of what's going to happen. And now I know what's going to happen. I don't know that it will be as as enjoyable a movie for me a second time, but I enjoyed it. I mean, you've you've done a great job picking films for this. Oh, thank you. All right, what did, what did we not talk about about Ravenous that you want to make sure we get to before we head into the end game here? I think that's about everything. But oh, there is one little thing. Apparently, the finale was it's a down and dirty fight between these two guys just grabbing whatever the hell they can get. Originally, it was meant to be much grander. It was meant to be a battle on the cabin's roof while it was all burning around them. But it was down to Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle who came up with this finale, which I think works better. And apparently, during it, the producers ran out of fake blood during the final fight. They were using so much. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're going to do a cannibal movie, you've got to make sure you have tons of fake blood on hand. <laughs> All right, well, let's move into the end game here. A couple of games before we're done. First up, as the algorithm oh, yeah. says, this is a lightning round of uh, movie titles for you to respond to. These are movies that various algorithms say you will like because you liked Ravenous. So this is your reactions. Do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Do you not see how the hell they're connected? Uh, this list gets weird. I will say that. Yes. All right, so start off Near Dark. One of my favorite vampire films. I love it. I mean, yeah, we've talked about the how vampiric it feels in this ravenous, so I can see the connection with that. Okay. Bone Tomahawk. I really like that film. It's very grisly. There's a one set piece which is an all-timer for me in that film. And at the beginning, I said this will make a good double bill with Ravenous. So, yeah, I think it's a good fit. Yeah. And I have not seen either of those movies yet. So I, I, I need to... To put those Very on my, I need to put those on my letterbox list to uh, forget about. Right, <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. Uh, in the mouth of madness. Okay, I like a Carpenter film, right? Yeah, yeah, I like it. I don't see how it's connected though. Maybe? I don't. Several Carpenter films came up on these algorithms, and it dawned on me. Because uh, the first one, In the Mouth of Madness, I was like, okay, whatever. It shows up on all the algorithms that I used. So I, that's I mm. had to include that. But the thing showed up and some other stuff. And I was like, this does kind of have a Carpenter vibe to it. The way this movie is and the, the atmosphere of it and, and such does kind of have a Carpenter-esque vibe to it. That's a good point. Um, the thing is a good idea because, well, they're both set in snowy climates where right. there's really nowhere to run to. And who's safe and who isn't, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know yeah, the in exactly. the mouth of madness, but as I said, that one showed up on all of the uh, on all of the algorithms I use, so that's why I put it on there. Mm. Have you seen that one? Uh, I love it. Oh god, it's I love very it. good. Yeah, Sam Neill. Uh, one of there, there are several moments in that film that just give me chills. Uh, <laughs> several little subtle things. So, um, mm. Priest. 
Right. I presume this is Antonia Bird's previous film rather than the Paul Bettany action film of the same name. <laughs> yes, I made that same mistake the first time. I thought that that was the priest that they were talking about. And I was, oh, no, I've been corrected. Yeah, this is Antonia Bird's uh, previous film. Um, no, I haven't seen it. This is the only Antonia Bird film I've actually seen. Her work isn't, well, there's a, I suppose there are a few which are accessible, but there's a lot which isn't. So yeah. I work with what you can do, really. Yeah. Okay. Memento. Okay, Guy Pearce. Right. Very good film. One of my favourites of Christopher Nolan. Same. Um, mm, okay, I suppose. Is there anything outside of the Guy Pearce connection, though? I don't think so, um, mm. other than just Guy Pearce playing a, a haunted character in a lot of ways. One with his shirt he's, off a bit. Yeah, he's a little more uh, active in Memento than he is here. Here he's a little more passive, like, morose type thing, which he, he sells well. As I said, he's playing, he's, he's channeling his best Ethan Hawke. Hmm. Okay, The Company of Wolves. Uh, oh, that ring- I haven't seen that, but it rings a bell. Neil Jordan? Uh, yep, Neil Jordan. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's uh, uh, Angela Lansbury, David Warner. Um, I, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. It's, it's Little Red Riding Hood with a twist type thing. Jesus Christ, why have I seen this? Yeah, you need to see it. It's probably... It's probably on my letterbox list. That's why. Probably. Well, if not, put it on there. Okay. Mm. Um, Reanimator. I mean, yeah, I like Reanimator. It's quite a good, quite a good film. But how is it connected? I told you this list gets weird. It's about. It's about to get even weirder. Are you ready? Oh, bring it on! There will be blood. Do they know what the <laughs> title? Did they go by the title alone? I'm guessing time period, because there will be blood okay. is, you know, settlement of America type thing. This is settlement of America, manifest destiny, you know, that kind of thing. But that's the only thing I can think of is the time I mean, period. Very good film, but there's a bit of a difference between Daniel Playview <laughs> and who Robert Carlyle plays. I mean, Christ. <laughs> Just a bit. Uh, okay. Shadow of the Vampire. Oh, no, I haven't seen that, but... I suppose we're back into the whole vampire element that we previously talked about. Yeah. Okay. And the last one I, I really want to hear from you on because I have, because I haven't gotten to see it yet, but pig. Oh, Nicholas cage. Yes. <laughs> Currently right, in theaters. Like I've never had an algorithm pop up a current movie. How are they? connected? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's something to do with cooking because Nicholas cage plays a chef in that film. And he doesn't, mm, he cooks a few things, nothing with human in it. But... <laughs> well, it's Nicolas Cage. You can never be sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a very good film. One of my favorites of the year. I've, yeah. I read, uh, yeah, I read your review on it. So I, I, that's, I was like, I got to throw that in. That was on the algorithm. I got to throw that one in. Okay. All right. Let's uh, head into the last thing, which is our pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, writer Ted Griffin says he got the initial idea for Ravenous from what odd source material? A, the story of the famed Donner Party. B, Stephen King's Salem's Lot. C, Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man. Or D, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, my initial response is the Donner Party, which is, yeah, when people... Uh, it's a cannibalism tale, isn't it? Yeah. A real, real tale. I'll go with that one. That seems a bit right. That it does seem right, but it's not. Uh, he originally Shit. got the idea from Dashiell Hammett's *The Thin Man*. I'm not familiar with that. Is that a? 
it's Dashiell Hammett, so it's got to be mystery. But apparently, there's a passage in The Thin Man that talks about um, the story of Alfred Packer. And that is, it, it's kind of on par with the Donner Party. It's the, Packer mm-hmm. is the cannibal, the musical source idea. Oh, so again, okay. there's that connection. Which cannibal, the musical, not showing up in the algorithm? What's up with that? <laughs> um, I'm but, surprised uh, there's not more cannibal films in that algorithm. First. Yeah, I, I know. But uh, yeah, it is uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man is what gave him his original inspiration. So, all right. You're pretty good on the rest of these, I'm going to tell you right now. Number two, original director Milcho Machevsky was let go after a problematic relationship between the studio and the director. Raja Gosnell was brought in as a substitute, but was was rejected by the cast. Ultimately, Antonia Bird was brought in as a director upon whose suggestion? A, writer Ted Griffin, B, actor Robert Carlyle, C, actor Guy Pierce, or D, producer Adam Fields. Robert Carlyle. Robert Carlyle, as you already said, yes. Uh, he had already worked with, uh, he's in Priest and another picture, so he had worked with Bird on mm. two other pictures previously. Uh, number three, the ending of the movie was altered during filming, pretty much made up by Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle, instead of the original scripted ending, which saw what happened. A, Boyd and Calhoun caught in a loop of eating each other to regain strength from one another. B, Boyd and Calhoun teaming up to take down the general and following through on Calhoun's plan. C, Boyd and Calhoun being destroyed by yet another unexpected return of Colonel Hart. Or D, Boyd and Calhoun fighting on the rooftops of the cabins as the fort burned down around them. Well, I'm glad it's not Jeffrey Jones returning again. Right? Jesus. <laughs> but as much as I would have liked to have seen them in a cycle of eating each other, it was the option D. Yes, yes. Yeah, they originally were fighting on burning buildings, which I'm not really sure. I mean, other than cool imagery, I... Mm. What I love about the ending as it is, is it's more thematically appropriate than Blockbuster. I think if they had done the burning buildings, Ebert absolutely would have been dead on with the superhero comparison. Mm. Very much. All right, last one. One of the cast members had to suffer through the film's cannibalistic material for his performance. The suffering coming from the fact that he's a vegetarian. Which cast member was it? A, Guy Pierce, B, Robert Carlyle, C, Jeffrey Jones, or D, John Spencer? I remember tale of... Um, Guy Pierce having to spit out the stew immediately after because it was lamb or something. So Guy Pierce. Yep, Guy Pierce is a vegetarian, and yes, absolutely. Robert Carlyle on the DVD commentary for this movie re- relays that story that he just would stoically sit there and eat for the take, and then as soon as <laughs> cut was yelled, he would spit out the meat, which was lamb, not people. So thank goodness, no people were hurt in the. Well, I can't promise that actually. So hey, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? <laughs> Well, I don't usually talk about cannibalism, but let's see how it goes. So if you want to hear about that, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at RoddersJ04. I also write at TheReviewingRodders.co.uk. That's where I post my film reviews, articles, podcast appearances. I'm currently covering the Fantasia Film Festival and their genre offerings. So take a look there and check it out. And you just hit a big anniversary as a uh, film critic, as writing writing film reviews, Mm. right? Yeah, um, the other day it was my 10-year anniversary since I wrote my very first review, which I read that first review recently. I don't like stuff which I've done a few months back. I hated what I did (laughs) 10 years ago. There have been a few times where I've uh, pulled up my own reviews for movies for this podcast, and I'm just like, Mm. oh, God, I couldn't write worth a shit back then. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. uh, Thank you for this. 
as I said, um, I, I enjoyed it. My criticism of the score aside, I like the enough. movie. I like the story. So I'm, uh, I, and I'm excited to see what you bring next time you're back on the podcast. Cause this is fun. Well, after your grimace, maybe I will go for Batman and Robin after all. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep threatening that. Then you will have picked a movie that a, I've heard of and B I hate. So yeah. <laughs> So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Ravenous or other cannibalism films, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talnhess, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, on Twitter and Letterboxd, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, where I have not seen this podcast, or email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. The Cape received a letter from an individual calling themselves the Cape May Slayer. There's a serial killer on the loose. What else could possibly be this exciting? Incoming titties. 12 o'clock. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love, because you know you want them to listen to a cannibal discussion. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to James Rodriguez for returning to the show and providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other. Mm-hmm.